Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Daniel Smith, candidate for leadership of the Alberta UCP and by extension premier for the province joins us. How are you, Danielle? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Roy. Yeah, good to talk to you again. So let's get right at it. The Sovereignty Act you're proposing. Explain it, please, to the rest of the country and to Albertans who may be a little bit still vague about it. What's it about? You know, it's, fu- it's funny, as I was listening to the interview you did with Scott Moe a few weeks ago, I sent it around to my team and said, my gosh, it sounds like Premier Moe is going to pass the Saskatchewan Sovereignty Act just like I want to, because he's talking in very much the same terms that I am. I, th- I think what's happened in the West is that we uh, we allowed the federal government to help us out in a lot of areas of our jurisdiction over the years. And maybe it was because we were low population, maybe we had smaller economies, maybe we thought they had our best interests at heart. But as we've grown in stature, in wealth, in capability, I think we're just wanting to see a return to the way the country was supposed to be governed, where the federal government has sovereign areas of jurisdiction defined by Section 91 of the Constitution, and Alberta has uh, and other provinces have sovereign areas of jurisdiction as, de- as defined by Sections 92 through 95, and there's some areas of concurrent. But we were never devised as a country to have provinces be subordinate levels of government. We've acted like it, sadly, in Alberta for too long, and we're just putting the rest of the country on notice that uh, we intend to assert our rights in the same way that Quebec has asserted its rights, in the same way Saskatchewan talks about being a nation within a nation, because that's the way we think our founders intended our country to work. Yeah, Premier Mo did say that on this program, nation within a nation, that's what he wants for the province. However, So how would it work then? So the federal government, Mr. Trudeau, and uh, whether it's his energy minister or his environment minister, decides that they're going to enact some legislation or some policy that you as premier of the province of Alberta would not agree with, would feel that it would contravene the Sovereignty Act. What would you do? Well, here's a couple of examples. Like when the federal government passed the Emergencies Act, which I think everyone now sees was illegitimate to do, the Quebec National Assembly, which is what they call their provincial legislature, convened and said, we won't enforce it. That's a, that's one example where they made a judgment that the federal government had gone too far and would not enforce it in their area of jurisdiction. I look at what has happened in British Columbia, as a for instance, they're taking a pretty novel approach in dealing with hard drugs, and they have a an exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, so you can possess and use hard drugs without uh, falling afoul of the criminal code. Um, and I think you also see with Scott Moe and the interview you did with him a few weeks ago, he said if the feds come through with a 30% reduction in fertilizer use, we won't enforce that. Agriculture yes, is a Section 95 right for the, the provinces. We're supposed to take the, the principal lead on that. So I think that we've even just in recent history seen some evidence and examples of how provinces are already exercising that. And, and I guess in point of fact, you could say, well, you don't really – need to have a Sovereignty Act then to do all of those things, since the provinces have the capacity to do it anyway. But I think if you're going to change the relationship with the rest of the country, and you're going to say, hey, look, we have all these areas that we know that you have invested in, developed programs in, developed policy, and we're going to take that back. We're going to repatriate that. I think it's I think it's respectful to put everyone on notice that the relationship is going to change. And so the Sovereignty Act would essentially be exactly that. It would say, we have these constitutional rights as defined by these sections. Here they are. 
We have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which we are obligated to protect the rights and, and freedoms of our citizens. We are signatory to the Charter. We're going to enforce that. And we have our own Alberta Human Rights Code, and we're going to make sure that we enforce that as well. And any federal legislation that contravenes these areas that we have a constitutional right to defend, we just won't enforce. That's that's the way I intend for it to, to be enacted. I'm not wanting to invade federal jurisdiction. I mean, the federal government has power over money printing and international trade deals, national defense, weights and measures. I'm not suggesting that we would take over any federal jurisdiction. You can areas. hear me laughing, right? Well, I know, but I mean, when you I, said I they have actually, jurisdiction I, over money printing, that's a good it's one. Very, it that's was very good funny because we did have a we did have a premier who wanted <laughs> to print his one, own yeah. currency once. That's why I wanted to make it clear that we're not planning on doing that. And when I mentioned to a friend, it's not like we'll take over weights and measures. I, one of my friends said, "Well, I want to return to the imperial system." Me too. No, we're not going to do that either. But All I right. do recognize that there is there are clear lines, and uh, unfortunately, the federal government doesn't respect those clear lines. So we're just going to draw it in a big, bright line for them so that they know that uh, we're, we've got to change the relationship. So you've uh, called Mr. Kenny the acting premier. Interesting. But Mr. Kenny claimed on, uh, you know, the Alberta Chorus radio stations that the Sovereignty Act, and I won't do the whole interview on the Sovereignty Act, but it's what people are talking about, that that act would make Alberta a laughing stock. Not everybody's heard your response. What do you say to the rest of the country paying attention now? Well, I think that the the premier should not be so partisan. Um, his job as an interim caretaker leader as well is to make sure he's not interfering in, in the race to tip the scales for his preferred candidate. And I, I know that there are a number of his caucus uh, colleagues who are upset that he's weighed in, uh, appearing to interfere. And I just hope he doesn't do that again, because it's not the role for him to have right now. And the way I've described the bill, um, I think people should just wait until we've written it and brought it forward we have lawyers who who will who will vet it we will talk with constitutional experts we will make sure that it uh, complies with the law i think i think what people don't understand is it's the federal government who's breaking the law right now is the federal government that's not respecting the foundational document the constitution is the federal government who keeps on driving in our lane and then making us go to court to, to try to push them back out again and so if the federal government act in a lawful way and, and stayed within its own jurisdiction, I don't think we'll have any, any future problems. But I, I think they need to know that Albertans have had it because we have had too many projects cancelled. We had the Northern Gateway Project, Energy East, the Keystone XL uh, pipeline got cancelled. They didn't have a, a word of, uh, of, uh, of support for that. Frontier Tech Mine, another major multi-billion dollar oil sands project couldn't see the way through the to the finish line because of so much federal meddling in the regulatory process it, it goes the, the cancellation of the lng at port saguenay it just goes on and on and when you have tens of billions of dollars being chased out of our province because of federal meddling we have to create a greater environment for investment certainty mm -hmm. we must do that now it's and the way we do it is by taking the lead again so danielle emails from listeners on this point quite a few Former leader of Wildrose, who led a number of caucus members across the floor of the Alberta legislature to join Jim Prentice and the progressive conservatives. Some listeners have sent me emails said, they, they will never forgive you for taking that action. 
What do you say to those people, residents of Alberta? You know, I, I've never spent a moment thinking about uh, about federal level of office. That's how much I love my own province and why I think it's so important that we have somebody who will put Alberta first in changing the relationship. And so when I go back on what happened in, in 2014, it seemed to me from where I was looking, and you do get dome disease, it seemed to me the public appetite was shifting towards unity. I mean, Jim Prentice had come back to try to fix things. The He was rising in the polls. He'd won four, four by-elections. And we'd seen mergers that had happened before. I, I misjudged. I, I thought people were ready for a unity conversation, obviously much sooner than they were. And as a result, I lost my nomination. Jim lost the election. We ended up with four years of Rachel Notley as, as premier. But I think when you look at the environment that we're in today, there is virtually no one who would say that if without the conservative movement could split or should split and still be able to win. I think when you look at not at Notley's NDP, they've maintained about 40 percent support in every poll I've seen. If this if this unity movement busts apart again, she will form government. And so I'm mindful of the fact that the same pressures that caused Wild Rose to be created in the first place, they'd come back because our, our rural environment doesn't feel respected. They don't feel we stood up to Ottawa. They don't like some of the draconian measures taken during COVID. And I felt like I could be a voice in, in keeping that party unified and bringing things together. I, I recognize some people will not accept that um, that I was an early adopter of unity, but I'm back in because I believe so much in the UCP as an entity. I was cheering Brian Jean and Jason Kenney along as they brought it together. And if I can do my part to keep it together, I think I think I ought to. I think that's, that's a role I need to play. So if we look at the UCP, we look at the party itself. There are some very strong people and determined people who are contesting the leadership with you. Do you believe that you're in a position now, and will be in a position if you were to win, that you can generate and assure yourself of their support of Daniel Smith as Premier of Alberta? I, I, I really appreciate all the candidates who are running in this race. We've got such a deep talent pool, really. And even among our, our caucus members who have gotten a chance to know over the, the last number of years, I, I think we have an incredibly talented team. And there's a little bit of frothiness that happens during a leadership race. People are vying for um, for the top job. They're demonstrating contrast of why they'd be better than the other. Um, and I, I think that all of that is just to be expected in a leadership race. I, I think those things can, can be overcome. And I, I know that every single one of them would make excellent cabinet ministers. Um, but I, I believe that I, I have the ability to, to take on Ottawa in a way that I, I just don't think they will be able to. I've been an opposition leader before. People know how that I know how to get tough when I need to get tough. Um, and I far prefer fighting liberals than fighting my, my fellow colleagues in the conservative movement. So people will have to make their choice based on the, the what they think is the biggest priority. But I think resetting this relationship with Ottawa is the most important priority. And I think that's, that's why um, people have, have been flocking to my campaign. So let's talk about this a bit more, resetting the relationship with Ottawa. It was no accident that I played the Scott Moe clips before we introduced you, and uh, and Mr. Moe was very, very clear about what his intentions are. Do you see the possibility, and constitutional change is extremely different, difficult in this country, but do you see an, uh, a possibility of an Alberta-Saskatchewan alliance on natural gas and oil, also the agri-sector, where the two provinces might stand together against Ottawa, if necessary, and possibly provincial governments as well. 
I would add Manitoba to the the partnership that you're talking about and our First Nations as well. And one of the things that I think would be the most important demonstration of that would be creating an economic corridor that stretches all the way from the Fort McMurray oil sands all the way to, to Churchill so that we would be able to create a new line for export, not only of our natural gas and, and oil resources, but also have transmission lines come back the other way so that we can integrate uh, Manitoba hydropower into our system, have a rail line so that we can have more products transported to the coast for export, whether it's forestry or agri- or the agriculture sector, and also work in partnership with our First Nations on economic reconciliation. And to me, we've been talking about these things since the 1930s. It was Ernest Manning who first raised them. Federal government clearly isn't going to take the lead on that. So I believe that we can work collaboratively with all the partners who have a similar interest to do exactly that. I I wish the federal government had more of an interest in those kind of nation building exercises. But if they don't, that doesn't mean that we we can't act in concert with each other in our our mutual benefit. That happens to be another area of constitutional jurisdiction for provinces is the right to be able to get their their products to export markets. So I I think that we would have good standing there. And from what I've heard of of Premier Mo, he sounds like he's in alignment with us. And I, I bet if we build a partnership with Manitoba, that we would be able to build that partnership with them too. I hear you saying, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I hear you saying that you believe that a, if you will, a power block, Western Canadian power block is necessary to counter at least the current government in Ottawa. Completely. And even when there is a new government, uh, if it it becomes a conservative government, I think we have to realize that everybody thought that Stephen Harper was going to solve all our problems in the West when he was first elected in 2008. He was an original signatory to that firewall letter talking about some of the things that I am collecting our income tax and our pension and our police service and and those those kinds of areas. But we never saw any action on that. I think the federal level of government just has different priorities. And it, it goes to the point that we, we really do have an obligation to our people in our provinces to be exercising our, our constitutional jurisdiction and, and be looking out for our provincial interests first. So I don't think that it's inconsistent um, with uh, the way our constitution is, is written, nor do I think that we take our foot off the gas if there happens to be a change of government too. Because the, prov- the country's changing. When, when we first established in 1867, there was very small population and small economies out West. Look at British Columbia now, five and a half million people. We're four and a half million people. Um, we've got powerhouses for various resource development in both Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And so there is a, a changing balance that's happening in the country just by the nature of how we've grown. And when that changing balance happens, eventually we'll have to have the conversation. When we are either the same size or larger than Quebec and have a bigger economy, is it really fair that they continue to get 24 Senate seats and we only get six or that they get a guarantee of appointing three people to the Supreme Court uh, out of nine and we get none or they get guaranteed House of Commons seats and we don't. So we're not quite at that point yet where we need to have those really foundational constitutional discussions. But I can see just from our own trajectory that we're on for economic growth and population growth, it's going to have to happen. And so that's why we're asserting ourselves now. We've been acting like a junior player in Confederation for too long. And we've got to we've got to start acting like a senior partner if we're going to be treated as that. So that's that's the beginning of the change in the okay. relationship. And I think it's gonna be very positive for the country, quite frankly. I have new partnerships. I have literally 45 seconds here. What does the rest of the country need to know about Alberta and maybe changes in the province of Alberta? Because everybody in Canada has an opinion about Alberta. 
you know, I think we've tried to be constructive. We, we've tried to um, bring people on board, uh, understanding that we want to continue developing our resources and be responsible on the environment. I mean, just keep getting the door slammed in our face. And, you know, that's fine. We had an equalization referendum to try to start a conversation about changing the relationship to get more respect. And the federal government gave us uh, Stephen Gilbo, who has now been launching attack after attack after attack on our industry. So that's our answer. And that just means that you shouldn't, that the rest of the country shouldn't be surprised when we decide that uh, that we're going to, to work with those partners that, that we feel have our interests at heart. And I think it's going to be very constructive. And I, I hope that the, that the federal government responds by respecting us in the same way that they uh, clearly respect Quebec, because that's all we're asking for. Is let's just be treated the same way. You must have been in radio. You timed that perfectly. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Roy. The first time I think I spoke with John Zogby about the state of uh, the union or the state within the state in the U.S., how well Americans are getting along with each other was about four years ago. In the interim, I've seen headlines like, Is the U.S. Falling Apart? That was a recent op-ed headline. We have U.S. states forming secession movements, not officially, but within the states there are secession movements. Um, and some of them are quite strongly in place, like California and uh, in Texas. Political parties and leaders are at each other's throats, proverbially at least, heading for the midterm elections. So are Americans turning on each other? As I said, we first broached this issue with our guest four years ago. John Zogby is the chairman of John Zogby Strategies, one of America's leading pollsters, op-ed writers, network news commentators, and author of We Are Many, We Are One. John, how are you? And good to have you with us. Good to be back with you, Roy. I'm, I'm fine, thanks. So your country, the U.S. flag flies alongside, and I've seen this, political declarations, angry denunciations of certain politicians and policies. We have U.S. Supreme Court justices confronted in restaurants and at their homes, circled by groups of people who are unhappy with their decisions, and the White House doesn't denounce the Supreme Court justices being harassed. And we have the unhappy response of people who believe in Donald Trump. 75 million Americans voted for Trump in 2020. We have that situation developing as the search took place at Mar-a-Lago. How do you put that all together? How healthy is your country today? Well, it's not, and it transcends um, issues like inflation and abortion and so on. I, I, I think the overriding issue we're dealing with today is um, the future of, of democracy in the United States. Whether there's secession or not secession, the fact that you have two political parties who are now at a stage where they do not recognize the legitimacy of the other party or recognize the legitimacy of elected candidates from the other party um, essentially those who deny the six million vote uh, uh, victory by joe biden uh, and actually run for office with that as part of their uh, part of their platform by the same token um, you have even the minority leader uh, mitch mcconnell of the United States Senate saying we're going to lose in November because we the Senate that is because we've put up terrible candidates that's quite an admission especially um, you know coming in August bottom line though is democracies being challenged it used to be the two parties disagreed over interpretation of the Constitution but you have strong elements uh, in at least the Republican Party, I have to say, who don't seem to 
uh, bend to the Constitution at all unless it agrees with them. So what is it exactly then? And maybe it's not possible to pinpoint it exactly. But what is it that's dividing Americans? And we used to say, well, there's a north-south division in the U.S. We have an east-west division in this country. There might be an east-west division in the U.S. It might be the northeastern corner against the southwestern corner because they don't really understand each other. That might have been an argument that would have been put forward years ago, John. But what is dividing Americans in 2022? If I summed it up, if I could, in two words, it would be change and technology. First of all, the change is bigger than uh, the new technologies, uh, social media, the fact that one person could get four million followers now and, um, and, and wreak some havoc. But it, it's, it's also that the, the capacity now to uh, beam hate, Beat, uh, beam rejection um, and, uh, you know, and, and that sort of thing and capture a following on it. In addition to that, the change has to do with race and ethnicity. These, uh, this kind of racial hate has existed and, and reared its ugly head, but now uh, with platforms, uh, that white supremacy can have and uh, anti-militant, anti-immigration. Um, uh, it's such that w- what's congealing is a fear of the United States becoming a majority-minority nation, and actually sooner rather than later. It, it's a fear of change to the point where people are saying, there's, uh, and especially among those over 50, uh, and male. Uh, hey, my United States is not what it used to be. It used to be white. Um, it, it used to be um, the familiar institutions that I could count on. Um, uh, I can't count on them uh, anymore. That the United States, whatever the United States said throughout the world was, you know, worth platinum, and now nobody listens to the United States anymore. It, it's all sorts of change. Um, coming all at once, and an inability or a lack of desire or a misunderstanding of, you know, what it means in my life. Um, At the same time, there is the technology. I've mentioned the social media, but you've got displacement at work. You've got displacement because of COVID. You've got a change in attitude towards work and the workplace, my community, where I live, how I work. Um, and it's a lot for people. Do you think... Some people. Yeah. Do you think, and I, I watch and listen to what uh, leading politicians say to each other uh, at a distance and say about each other even at a greater distance. And it's not polite. It's not pleasant. It certainly doesn't um, lead to any dialogue that is going to be meaningful and, and, and positive. Do you believe there's a situation that could exist in, in, in the United States where secessionist movements, and we know they're strong in Texas and California, maybe other states as well. Do you believe secessionist movements could carry the day? Could there be a situation where internally the United States starts to, I never thought I would ever say this, break up? Uh, Roy, I actually do. And the thing I'm trying to get my arms around right now is uh, whether or not the time has come 
for that. I, I mean, if, if, if we are in a situation where there is no longer a common set of values, and at the top of that is democracy, and among that is, is, um, uh, is, is race and racial justice, um, if there is a rejection of the, not only the values but the, the rule of law, of the of the Constitution, then yes, I, I think um, uh, it's within the realm of possibility. And, and going back to what I was saying earlier, of the power of social media and the ability of, I mean, one doesn't have to raise a billion dollars anymore. Yeah, uh, that's right. You know, to, to capture a following and right. to manipulate a vote or win a vote. Yeah. So there are midterm elections coming up in November, which could change the balance of power in the U.S. government in Washington, if the Republicans gain control of the Senate, have the House, then that essentially would uh, just make Biden a lame duck, which people mm-hmm. argue he already is. But then uh, then what, John, in about, we have about a minute left, and I thank you for being flexible with the time that we have today. Mm-hmm. Then comes 2024, and if Donald Trump is running again, and if Biden isn't and somebody else is for the Democrats, then, <laughs> I don't know if the answer to this is to you, then what? Well, first of all, let's go back to what you said, and I know I've got less than a minute now. Um, I, I'm not so sure we're looking at, uh, at a Republican victory in November. I think the Senate is, is looking kind of dicey for the Republicans. Uh, I said, I said the if, House yeah. is concerned. Projections went from a pickup of 35 to 40 seats for the Republicans to now 7 to 9 seats. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of momentum on the democratic side i I don't know and i can't project we have two or three lifetimes between now and the time that people actually vote Mm -hmm. uh... but i think it's going to be very competitive now about twenty twenty four uh... i i don't know i would not rule out uh, a biden run if he continues to have momentum if he wins uh, in november um, uh, you know keeps control of both houses it's not likely but it, it very well could happen um, on the other hand who's the bench i don't think you look at the usual cast of characters you know from the vice president and from inside washington i think you look at a governor or a mayor actually somebody outside but somebody who's competent and can manage what's going on in germany currently with their um energy crisis, they're saying that in the wintertime, they're going to limit the heating of public buildings to 19 degrees Celsius. 19 degrees Celsius. Lots to talk about here. Dan McTagg joins us from Canadians for Affordable Energy. He's the president of the organization. How are you, Mr. McTagg? I'm fine, Roy, on this fine day. Thank you. Good to talk to you. As well, and I'm looking forward to this topic. I think it's uh, it's going to be very revealing to the extent that uh, Canadians uh, have uh, elected government and a parliament that's committed to ensuring that we can never help the world when it truly needs it, not to mention our own problems. So let's talk about what uh, Mr. Schultz and Mr. Trudeau are apparently going to be talking about, and that's uh, and signing an agreement on, on Monday. That's a hydrogen uh, sale to uh, to Germany agreement 30 years, maybe 30 years from now, several decades from now. But they won't talk about LNG, liquid natural gas exports to to, uh, to Germany, which is what the crisis is all about in Germany. How often does a German chancellor actually visit us? Never. I don't remember Angela Merkel coming to Canada. I'm sure it probably happened in terms of uh, G7 uh, commitments. But 
look, a hydrogen is going to be made with natural gas. <laughs> and you don't want to build a pipeline in Canada. In fact, you can't build a pipeline in Canada. So good luck with doing that. And when the federal government, after spiking all of the LNG, 16 to 17 projects, uh, bending over backwards for every foreign organization that's come in here and uh, used uh, you know, their uh, lawfare to try to prevent the building of LNG. You have a provincial government, Quebec, uh, the uh, the Go government, saying, hey, uh, there's no social uh, uh, license for this, even though they don't want to poll their own people who now say, yes, we do want pipelines. That aside, how are you going to get LNG to any port if you can't build a pipeline? Because LNG, both made with natural gas, yeah. and I'm not talking the stuff you pick up from the swamp, so there's a difference between the green and the blue, but 30 years from now, get real, get uh, you know, get a grip. There's no one who can make policy that far down the road. So this is more window dressing, but I can tell you with my contacts uh, that I have both in the energy sector and in the diplomatic sector. So you, older folks I used to work with years ago when I was responsible for Canadians abroad, uh, uh, and I had a position at uh, Foreign Affairs, are still saying, why did Canada fail to get natural gas to the rest of the world? Why are we so bloody dependent on Russia? And now, of course, this is an example of uh, where you take your green policy and you don't look before you leap. So why do you think Mr. Schultz is actually here and he's brought a power delegation with him? Well, I think it has a lot to do with maybe thanking Canada for reneging on its sanctions on Russia and uh, complying with uh, Germany's uh, folly in terms of having to get that turbine because, of course, Germany has foregone its own natural gas production, its own coal production, its own nuclear production. Uh, and, you know, quietly said we're going to rely under this energy wind day uh, pro, uh, program or policy uh, saying, yeah, we can pretend we're green, but we're still going to be bringing in fossil fuels from Russia. Uh, and we're going to be bringing in natural gas, our oil, and uh, we might produce a little bit here and there, but we're going to be clean, but we're going to bring all the dirty stuff in from other parts of the world. It's hypocrisy, but I think it's here to basically thank Canada for uh, turning its back on Ukraine and, uh, and uh, you know, doing uh, Germany's business. Germany finds itself in a very un- awkward position where after trillions of dollars spent in energy, green energy, it now realizes that it, uh, it has created a political problem and an economic crisis on the scale that that country hasn't seen since 1945. Yeah, we are going to be speaking with the, as I mentioned earlier, the president of the Canadian-Ukrainian Congress, which along with the Ukrainian government is reminding this country, as we said at the beginning, that it has a responsibility, or at least asking that Canada retain its responsibility to the sanctions and not make these turbines available to Russia. If you give them to Germany, they're going to go exactly where we know they're going to go, and that is to uh, to Russia. And uh, if, yeah. if, if Putin gets them back, and we're talking about six, not just one, if he gets all six of them, then he still has the option to decide to turn off the spigot not only to Germany, but all of Europe, or most of Europe. And given the kind of thug he is, I wouldn't be surprised if he does exactly that when the weather turns cold. Well, he's going to do that, uh, and it's why Germany's now having to import coal. Coal prices have gone to the roof. Energy tripled last year in Germany. It doubled in England. It's going to triple this year from that doubling and tripling of last year. So, uh, you know, uh, there's no doubt that uh, short-sightedness is really behind this, but uh, more than that, uh, the two factors come into play here. One, the sanctions uh, didn't work. The ruble is stronger. Uh, you know, Russia selling more oil. Uh, Canada still on the sidelines, navel gazing. You know, ah, shucks, shoulda, coulda, woulda, but didn't, because we were too busy, as I mentioned earlier, bending over backwards uh, for climate fanatics uh, and their willingness to shut off Canadian energy. And look, Russia's the number eight world uh, provable reserves. Uh, Canada is number three. 
Russia is number three in terms of exports. Canada is number eight or nine. It should have been inversed. And so, you know, it, it's not one of these things, Roy, where you can say, oh, we, we, we had a chance, but we didn't. We blew it. And hindsight is twenty twenty. No. If folks like me have been complaining for a long time that these woke green policies have a cost. And it's not just a cost borne on Canadians with a weak Canadian dollar that's adding to inflation. More than anything else, and the Bank of Canada governor had to admit this two weeks ago, three weeks ago, after raising interest rates 1%. He can't understand why the Canadian dollar has not responded to the therapy of higher interest rates, higher than the United States, by the way, and $100 oil, more or less. And uh, the simple answer is, well, this is what happens when you have nothing to attract uh, investments and capital into Canada. Your dollar is weak. It uh, erodes our purchasing power. So it not only hurts Canadians economically, in which the response is going to be higher interest rates, we have not come to the world's rescue. And mm-hmm. for Christian Freeland and others to go around saying, well, this is what happens, and this is a world phenomenon, baloney. Canada has a significant role to play in terms of energy stability and energy supply. Well, we were going to be, 10 years ago, if you and I had this conversation, 10 years ago, the prediction was that Canada was going to be the energy supplier to much of the world. We had it, we as you said, number three in natural gas uh, globally. So we were going to be providing the world what it required and doing so. The word ethical is brought up all the time, so let's say it. We said we were going to do it ethically and appropriately and dependably to our allies and our friends and not have to rely on the very person, the very crew that invaded Ukraine and is committing the atrocities that are being committed there to provide Europe with the oil and the gas, certainly the gas that it requires. And uh, Germany also, Dan, has had the option to use its nuclear plants, which it's decided not to do. I think they have one in operation now. They could uh, put more of them back online. They're also, uh, they've re-energized or reset their, their coal um, plants, so they're they're turning back to coal for energy. There have been announcements that public buildings in Germany are going to be kept to a maximum of 19 degrees Celsius uh, this winter, and they're turning off some traffic lights in Berlin. This is how serious it's become in uh, as far as energy is concerned and, and gas is concerned. They don't have storage capability, or they have the capability, but they don't have the storage because they haven't been able to generate enough renewables in order to provide them with backstop for the, for the wintertime. This is going to be very, very difficult, and uh, it has the potential, a very real potential, to spread way beyond Europe and affect all of us. Yes? Well, yes, of course. Uh, And, you know, what affects Germany affects Europe, affects the world. It's not just Germany, of course. Uh, Britain is in the same pickle. Um, Industry is going to have to shut down. Britain's not in a bad position as Germany. No, but they uh, can also import a lot of biofuels, i.e. cut down wood, get pellets, and use those as an alternative. But make no mistake, they are going to be facing the same increases in electricity rates just as the winter starts, the onset of winter. And yeah, sorry to that. interrupt you. Sorry to interrupt but as we're having this conversation, and each time I have this conversation, I have the same thought. None of this was necessary. None no, of this was, was necessary. No. Transition to renewables, do it in a manner that absolutely makes sense, and do it on a timetable that's going to work, and isn't going to cause a situation where there are entire nations facing the potential of a lack of energy, and we know that nations can turn against nations if you if you hoard your own supplies for your own population, which is not unlikely, then you have additional problems politically and otherwise developing. Well, you have more than political problems because it was a political decision that got us here. This yeah, wasn't based it was, on you're science, right. It wasn't you're based right. on engineering or, yeah. fa- or fact. It's based on fantasy. And look, I'm not disparaging good intentions, 
but good intentions don't make for good public policy. And I know something about that. I spent 18 years uh, developing my own types of policies and working with governments that did. We need to be pragmatic and practical. We haven't been. We've allowed climate alarmism to take, uh, you know, to take uh, and seize what would otherwise be rational and important and progressive policies that allow us to get to the point where we can make those transitions. That's not happening because a couple of demagogues in Ottawa or around the world at conferences decide to sit back, swill canapes, uh, uh, swill Perrier and eat canapes, telling us that uh, this has to be done in their timetable. It's not realistic, Roy. And I think people have to understand there is no way... No, I mean, Dan, net zero. all we have to look in is what's happening. That tells us that it's not realistic. It's and, uh, and, you know, the argument is that Russia invaded Ukraine and that's caused a problem. It certainly contributed yeah. to the issue. But it didn't, it's not the entire issue. But let me bring this home, because we only have a few minutes left, you and I, on this segment. Uh, let me bring this home to this country. I've talked to people who almost have become comfortable now, if not comfortable, accepting of the fact that they're spending, paying a buck seventy, a buck sixty, a buck seventy, a buck seventy-five for a liter of gasoline. And if you're going to be comf- comfortable with that, then you're going to probably be comfortable with $2 a liter, which takes us right back to where we were when people's budgets to uh, to feed themselves and to fuel their vehicles were overextended. And, you know, buck 70, the difference between a buck 70 and a buck 80, a buck 85 isn't that much. But a buck 70, we should not, we should not be comfortable a dollar 60 or a dollar 70. No, and you hit on all the other ancillary, uh, all the other impacts. But are you comfortable with 8% mortgage rates? I think it's a question that you have to ask the 905-416, Vancouver, uh, Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, uh, Eastern Canadians. Are you okay with going from 3 4% to 8 9%? Because this inflation, this energy inflation, has a lot to do with the food inflation, the overall cost of living, and the weakness in the Canadian dollar. All of these things are going to make it improbable for even upper middle class to survive, you know, without uh, any discomfort. So I think that's the, that's the question, uh, and it's, it's coming faster than we thought. You mentioned uh, Vladimir Putin earlier. Putin is just a symptom of the bigger problem. When we turned our back on energy, we turned our back on global stability. What's going to happen to the cost of gasoline, to diesel, natural gas, electricity, to keep Canada warm this winter? What do your projections tell you? Look for a doubling of natural gas and propane prices uh, because we've this time last year the benchmark was three bucks for an MMBTU. That's the benchmark. This year it's nine. Uh, year before that it was one and a half two. So look, a doubling last year, not quite, maybe forty fifty percent. Look for one hundred and twenty to one hundred fifty percent increase on the, that part of your natural gas bill in places like Ontario regulated markets. Look for electricity prices to have to follow and diesel. <laughs> home heating fuel in yeah. eastern parts of the United States and Canada, you ain't seen nothing yet. Gas prices will be uh, will go up in September and October. They will not fall. Uh, and even if governments try to uh, you know mitigate, not that the federal government does, um, the provincial governments are trying their best, it still won't be enough. We're back to the reality of $2 a litre permanently, and it's going to go much higher. The federal government wants not one, but two carbon taxes, which by 2025 will add another 15, 20 cents a litre to the price of gasoline and diesel and uh, all the other fuels we need as Europe is learning to uh, make our economy run. 
So it doesn't matter now, Dan, given what we have, where we are. Does it really matter who's in power? Would a, would, a, would a change, and I'm not suggesting that I'm not in favor of a change at the top in the federal government. I think everybody knows I am. But would it really make a significant difference as far as who's in power, who's regulating, who's running the, the country from the PMO? Could they make a significant change that it would be favorable to the consumer? Yes. Toss the fantasies of net zero by 2030. It can't be achieved. It can't be achieved financially, practically, and in a cold country like Canada. Also, of course, what's going to happen to Europe is something you really envy. But I think that's the stuff of magic and make-believe and fanaticism. and It has no place in public policy. You know, I, uh, I spoke with Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about the energy situation. And, uh, and uh, the Premier said, and I hope I'm paraphrasing him correctly. I think I am. I'm quite sure I am. He said, as far as the province is concerned, it will not bow to a caretaker government, and it will uh, uphold and enact its constitutional rights to govern its management of, uh, of uh, energy. And, uh, and I expect the premier is going to, is going to do that. The, yeah, we are in a situation now, most Canadians think, realize, we're in a situation like, now, like we haven't encountered before, and we don't know, we don't know where we're going. And Europe is sometimes, and it's a terrible uh, analogy, I suppose, but it's the canary in the coal mine. Yep. And look, we're double, we're, we're, we're ignoring that. We're double downing on all these bad green policies that have hurt. Okay. And so, you know, this, it, it's in front of us. Do not go this route. Our, our European economies right. are dying. If Canada wants to emulate that, good luck. It isn't just a political decision. It's about the survivability of North America and our our society as a whole. Each of us who've had a dog in our lives, or more than one dog, um, have experienced, at least once, a dog disappearing. And it's a panic moment. You want to find your buddy. And most of us eventually find our dog. Sometimes not the same day, but eventually they are found or they come back. This is an amazing story. A missing dog was found more than two months after it went missing, and where it was found is absolutely fascinating. Rick Haley joins us. He's a caver in uh, Missouri in the United States, and um, it's his story. Rick, thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, Thank you, Roy. It's a fantastic story. So um, why don't you just tell us how you became aware of this dog being missing and how you being a caver, and what is a caver, by the way? So a caver is somebody who uh, explores caves, documents them, um, does a lot of uh, survey mapping, bio-inventory, that sort of thing. Okay, and that's what you were doing at the time, yes? Yes, we had a project weekend at uh, a cave system called the Moore Cave System. Uh, It was being put on by the Cave Research Foundation. Uh, The project leaders are Chad McCain and Mark Brooks. And so they had a survey going on, a dive attempt to get two caves connected, which we had to abort because of a malfunction in some gear. And then we had the first door-to-door trip in this cave. Um, also with that, we had some recreational cavers who were there just to experience the cave. They were parents and, uh, kids who ventured into a part of the cave that we weren't working in that day and stumbled upon the dog. 
and that's when uh, my fellow rescuer, Gary Keene, took a picture of the dog, uh, left a flashlight on, and then that group had to exit the case. He then uh, surfaced, called the local fire department, assistant fire chief Rob Cahoon responded, and then they went door-to-door through the neighborhood trying to figure out whose dog it was. And they eventually located Jeff Bonert, uh, the owner of Abbey. Uh, he then returned, Gary did, to the entrance of the cave where I was just coming out and said, oh, good, you're here to help us do a dog rescue. At that time, um, we had to figure out how to get her out of the cave as safely as possible. I grabbed a duffel bag and a blanket, and then we proceeded into the cave to facilitate the rescue. That's an amazing story. Absolutely amazing. So you're mapping out this cave system, and you come across this uh, group of amateur cavers or people who are just enjoying themselves in the cave system, and they tell you that, hey, there's a dog. We found a dog over there. And you take a picture of the dog, and then, as you pointed out, the the fire department got involved, and the process was process of elimination, knock on doors until you find the owner. You find the owner. So what was the uh, condition um, where this dog was? Was it immobile? Was it not able to get out of where it was? So Abby, the dog, had curled up on a mud floor uh, in a ball and had been there a very long time. She was emaciated, um, had basically been starving. Uh, She had been in a totally dark, uh, 58-degree environment, pretty wet. And um, she um, just existed there potentially from June 9th to August 6th when we found her. If it weren't for the project weekend, we would have never found her. Two months. And dog in the cave. So when you found her, how did you? How did Abby respond to you seeing her and and, and picking her up? So um, she was very lethargic. Uh, she could lift her head. She didn't want to really get up and stand. She was very very weak. She was very skinny. Um, she smelled horrible. Um, when I approached her, I thought maybe she might have gangrene. Upon inspection. There was no other injuries other than you could tell she had been down there a long time. Yeah. What was the reunion like between Abby and uh, what's the the owner's name? Owner's name is Jeff Bonert. Um, Jeff uh, retrieved her once we had gotten her uh, out of the passage 500 feet, which was kind of technical. It was tight. It was vertical. At the end, you had sort of a 40 foot corkscrew crawl where we crawled with her in front of us and handed her hand to hand until we got her outside the cave to uh, assistant fire chief Rob Cajon. You guys are heroes. Well, so I guarantee you there were 30 people at that project weekend. If they had all been there, we would have lined that cave with people to get that dog out of there. It's just what we do. Yeah. Well, you are heroes, and you saved Abby's life, and you reunited her with with Jeff. What a tremendous story. And as you said, uh, and I read a little bit about it, it wasn't easy to get her out of there and do what you did. Rick, this is a fantastic story. How do you feel about it? Well, it has been overwhelming. Um, I didn't realize at the beginning 
that this story was going to go viral, um, I have to thank a lady called, her name is uh, Judy Creek, who cobbled the story together and released it to the media. And from that point on, it went worldwide. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's a story that just touches your heart. Now, millions and millions of people have dogs. And I was reading yesterday that since the COVID uh, pandemic began, there was, a, I think it was a 41% increase in the numbers of, and I could be wrong about this, but I think it was 40, 41% increase in the numbers of Canadian families that acquired a dog, probably similar numbers in the United States. And we all have this fear of our dog running away or getting lost. And you interceded and helped bring to an end one of those fear stories for Jeff and reunite uh, him and his dog. And it's this is a story, Rick, that no one who hears it will ever forget. Years from now, somebody will say, I heard that. Uh, let me tell you about the story I heard about the guys in Missouri who rescued a dog in the caves. It's a fantastic story, and I thank you for joining us, and thank you for what you did. Well, thank you. Great talking to you. Thank you. Rick Haley in Missouri. What a terrific story. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.